Welcome to the Monsters of Fantasy. This was written, produced, recorded, and edited by me, Sean McCarter. Monsters of Fantasy is a production in which I will explore the truly horrific side of the fantasy world known as Dungeons and Dragons. There are content warnings in the show notes below. Episode 11 The Crawling Claw Hello. As I mentioned in the last recording, Nico wanted to put up the Crawling Crawl as his way of celebrating the Festival of the Dead. It is such a tiny, insignificant little thing, and honestly, I don't even know why he's putting it in his monster manual. It's it's like if I put the crawling toe or crawling noses. It's an animated undead body part, right? But when I started to dispute this with Nico, just kept rudely abrupting me, pointing at the large pile of parchments that contained entirely too much information about this monster. Encounter taken from Peter Ludwig regarding his encounter with the crawling claws of Van Buren. I grew up in Van Buren and always loved it there. Being the closest major town to Voron, a lot of travelers find themselves roaming our streets and maybe staying a night or two in the inn. If you come up from the deserts of Rakir, then it's almost assured you'll pass through our town. And because my parents were shopkeepers, my bedchambers looked out over the main streets. And that's how it all began, with people watching. It wasn't obsessive or anything. I was only a child, and I had no siblings to keep me company. And books were plenty fine, it's just... They just bored me. I genuinely enjoyed watching the faces of all the people who passed through the town. I would make up little scenarios in my head about what it was a specific person would be doing. A dragonborn wearing wispy thin sheets may look like a traveler from Rakir, whose clothes are designed to block out sand. But, despite the very obvious, I would concoct some bizarre story about how this particular dragonborn was an assassin sent from our enemy nation to kill our king. These were outlandish and childish thoughts, I know, but that's how I passed my time upstairs while father and mother tended to the shop. That is, until the age of nine, when I started sneaking around the town and started following the people I watched. I would continue to make up exciting stories about them, but for some reason they all had to deal with some sort of crime. A tabaxi who obviously owned a fromagery, but to me, he was a stealthy criminal come to poison someone with a wheel of cheese. It didn't always start like that, of course. I would look at the person intently, taking in their clothing, their luggage, and if they stayed a night or two in the town, their conversations. I would take this stuff in, but it was always rather boring. The merchants peddling products, messengers carrying notes from the different cities, religious fanatics either flocking to or from Voron. It was always nicer to imagine their lives a bit more... Exciting. Occasionally, some of our king's own military would come through, and once even an army wearing the bannermen of the new king, Aparax. I had thought it was a declaration of war, but it was actually a peace treaty being cemented between the two nations. But I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm telling you all this because this ritual of people watching and playing make-believe detective really grew on me. So I became a real one. Or rather, I now do some freelance work for some coin, but I don't actually work for the local or capital law enforcement. In fact, 
I've been paid to spy on one of the king's commanding officers who had been cheating on his wife. In the real world, things still weren't that interesting, though. You'd be surprised at how all the local smiling faces you see ain't so faithful, or kind, as they seem. Not many murders, honestly, but a lot of illegal magic item trafficking, tons of adultery, and the age-old crime of thievery was definitely rampant in our little town. The reason why murderers weren't so common here, or at least why they made sure to never get caught, is because they held public executions and no one wanted to be found with their neck under the blade next. And when Van Buren had a dramatic spike in murders all in one night, that quiet stalking and people-watching started to pay off. The spike happened three days after the parade of the Festival of the Dead. I unfortunately didn't happen to see anything that night because I was sound asleep on my cot above my parents' shop. It wasn't until the next morning when the town crier announced the death of four merchants who had been staying the night at the Blue Bull, because the incident happened within confines of a locked room on the third floor and looked like the results of a fist fight, the local authorities just chalked it up to a bar brawl, and not a homicide. But you know how my overactive imagination could not let the death of three men in a locked room be simply a fist fight? So I started investigating, and while I'm not given any authority by the lawmen, I can sneak my way around a tavern and investigate without a problem. And as far as the corpses go, I had become a good friend of the coroner after I helped him find out that his brother was sleeping with his wife. It all left him in shambles, but at least he hadn't sired any kids, and when the affair became apparent, his brother and wife took off to Bawai. First, I decided to go visit the crime scene. Because I was doing this, not in conjunction with the local authorities, I had to do it at night. Now, I don't know a lot of magic, but when I saw that it was almost impossible to climb into their third floor window, I decided to cast a detect magic spell. I looked all over the smooth stone surface for signs of any magic that somehow could have been used to maybe help them get inside. Presently, nothing was popping up, so I decided to pull out my grappling hook and ascend to the third floor. Once I was up there, I could see whoever it was had come in through the roof. The fingerprints were at the top of the windowsill, and they climbed down and simply opened the window, it seems. I don't know how the town's guard didn't notice it, or maybe they didn't even bother to look, but I guess that's because from their perspective, it was locked. So that means two things. I was tracking probably the most notorious murderer in Van Beer, at least for the past 40 or so years, and that whoever did this at least locked it with an arcane spell like Mage Hand, which is exactly what I was doing to unlock it. Or they left through the front door. But that seemed more unlikely. Of course, the guards already questioned everyone from the inside and came up with dead leads, hence the ruling on some travelers having fallen out after being too deep in their cups. Before going in, I glanced around and looked at the rooftops, trying to formulate an idea on where the assailant had come from. There weren't many buildings close by, maybe two that someone could have actually jumped from. I had a mental note to go and check on those later. One was the proprietor's property, so I decided he was doing his own killings, but I couldn't rule it out. And the other was a two-story cottage shop of Arthur's, our local Fletcher. I doubt he had anything to do with the murders, but they could have used his roof to access this one. The first thing I noticed when I got into the room was the smell of cleaner. It had only been a day, but the sheets had been changed and the floor scrubbed. Some of the boards were obviously newer and had just been replaced. The smell of pneumonia stung my nose as I looked under the freshly made beds. There were four of them and nothing at all except some dust was underneath. It wasn't until I struck a match that I noticed varying sized voids in the dust, almost the size of a copper piece but there were dozens of them covering the parts of the floor where the cleaner didn't get all of it. 
I moved some of the furniture in the room, and the same varying sized holes displayed on the ground. I went over to the closet to finish the investigation, and it seemed that a portion of the struggle took place here, and they had yet to replace the boards in here. It looked like someone had been grabbing on the wall and then climbed up and across the ceiling, but the pair of nail marks didn't look like a pair. I couldn't explain it, but their footsteps, if you would, didn't seem to be in sync. But there was no blood or anything to follow up on, and aside from more of those disturbances in the dust, I didn't see anything of importance. I decided I was done here and would pay my friend a visit in the morning. When I was leaving, I noticed the drapes to the back room of Arthur's shop move slightly, and at the time I chalked it up to my rampant imagination about the potential assailant, but... I couldn't help shrug off the idea that someone had watched me climb out of that window. And it wasn't until I was trying to fall asleep that night, restlessly turning scenarios over and over in my mind that I formed the horrid idea that all those dots leading up to those claw marks were fingerprints. And that meant all the other ones were fingerprints too. Following that logic, I also noted the complete lack of boot prints let alone any other disturbances in the dust as if the fingers were just hopping along the surface. The next morning I went to Salus's place before he opened up. Salus was an older half-elf who had a slender and pleasant face. He always kept a calm, almost happy demeanor. It was reassuring when he had to deal with families in grief, usually saying something about them spending their time in the fields of Elysium, gleefully enjoying streams of happiness. But when he kept that face while doing the autopsy, a calm and gentle face, but one that so clearly enjoyed violating the corpses brought to him. The twisted smile he always wore seemed to be more intimidating this time, though. I, I think it was just my imagination because, like a true friend, he helped me out with my case. Let me examine all the bodies of the victims, they were all dwarves, so probably from the eastern city of Krug Duval. And covering all of the bodies were bruises and scratches. But it seemed odd. It didn't look like a flurry of drunken blows you would expect from some dwarves drunkenly fighting. It looked like they spent turns holding each other down and beating each other. It made no sense for the scenario they portrayed. I examined one of them, some poor chap who had an eye clawed out and was finished off by very forceful strangulation. This is where I made a very clear discovery. The marks that covered his throat were clearly not caused by a dwarf. If I had to take my guess, it was done by the hands of a dragonborn or a kobold. I saw claw marks where all five digits punctured into his skin, but whatever it was squeezed with so much force that the scales on their hand caused the victim's neck to chafe away. I had a growing suspicion at that point, but before I could act on it, I decided to look underneath his fingernails, and sure enough, under magnifying glass there was a bit of blood, but also the presence of slightly faded away red scales, that of a dragonborn. And just as my wild and imaginative mind could only conclude, I had to think that it was the most recent person to commit murder and be executed. A dragonborn named Drekal. He was a large brute of a fellow only executed thirteen days prior. I couldn't help but ask if he still had his body available for me to see, but the coroner informed me that he had already been burned and cremated after his execution, and that there was no way possible that he could have committed this crime. That he watched him die and confirmed the death himself. 
He then chuckled behind his crooked grin and said at least, not the same body, now souls. That's another thing. I left that night, but I couldn't help but think that the two people Drekal killed were killed in the exact same way. And obviously Salus knows something is up about it. Because we both looked at those exact same markings on the necks from the two different cadavers just two weeks ago. But now the question was, how did our friend return from the dead to murder once again? I didn't have enough proof yet to bring any of this to the town guard, and even when it very well could have been my imagination running wild again, because, to be fair, I didn't have any evidence it was the same markings around the victim's necks. They had already been buried, and I refused to go as far as a grave robbing to prove a point. So, instead, I did the only good thing a detective would do next. I returned to the scene of the crime. I stayed camped out there all day laying low against the roof of a building less than a block away. I brought rations in case it'd be a long stakeout, and I positioned myself so that I could watch and speculate at who amongst the moving flocks of people might be the murderers. I'll admit I didn't see anything of Drekal, nor of any suspicious activity happening around Arthur's house, nor around the inn. From my vantage point, I could see both clearly until it got dark. At which point, my human eyes failed me and I had to cast the spell that granted me dark vision. A wizard taught it to me once as payment. It was as I was sprinkling the carrot dust into my eyes and speaking the words of magic did my ears catch the sounds of something skittering up the wall behind me. I blinked and spun around and saw dozens of giant tarantulas crawling towards me. But as my eyes came into focus, I saw that it was not tarantulas, but rather a carpet of hands and various states of decay, all twitching towards me. The closest one had a good bit of flesh on it, and seemed to be the right claw of a goblin. But the green skin was now a faded yellow, and was falling off the muscle underneath it. I could see bones sticking out of the stump, and muscle tendons pulled at its base as each of its long pointed fingers crawled towards me. It wasn't until I felt the painful snap of my own tendon that I realized I was surrounded. I thought the roof was the safest vantage point, but it had seemed that all four sides of the building had been equally covered by these tiny monstrosities. As my leg crumpled under my weight, I tried catching myself, but hands were now grabbing and pulling at my clothing. Not long after I found myself being assaulted from every direction, my world turned into a blur of claws and fist. I fought back hard, kicking and stabbing, even trying to bite my way out, but the five or six I took out did nothing to lessen the assault. Eventually, I saw the large, red, scaly hands of Drekal the murderous dragonborn, no longer attached to his barbaric body. The two meaty claws wrapped around my neck and squeezed until my world was no longer a painful prison of palms, but the comforting cold of unconsciousness. I woke up later strapped to a table in some abandoned underground building. In my trade, I've been in and snuck around a few underground hideouts. This one was quite different, though. I saw that dozens of hands were walking around and aiding whom I could only call cultists. They did well to keep their faces hidden underneath painted masks, all of them mimicking some kind of skull. There were four of them in this room as I started waking up. The details here start to get fuzzy, but... I remember three of them standing around me chanting. I watched as hands crawled around, lighting candles, sprinkling rose petals, seemingly aiding them in whatever it was they were doing. I shouted at them, of course, but nothing I said stopped their chanting. 
I only know some of the basics in Arcana, but I could tell whatever it was they were saying came from some old arcane magic. Nothing they said seemed to match up with anything I knew about the arts, but I could tell it was necromantic. I shouted and yelled, spitting at the one closest to me, who had been turned around with their back facing me. They turned around, and I could finally see now that a table was sitting in front of them. There were only two things on the table, an old and ancient-looking tome bound in dark black leather. It was opened up, and while I couldn't comprehend the shifting runes on the page, I did see an anatomical picture of a wrist. Not any wrist. Mine twitching and moving against the page as a sprawled, inky sketch, and next to it was an old, rusty saw covered in dried blood. I wish I could tell you that I fought my way out heroically, or that I even begged and pleaded to not end up like the rest. But no matter how much fighting or pleading I did, no matter how much I begged whatever god could hear my cries to at least take my consciousness away to escape the pain, but I wasn't even granted that. The ritual took almost an entire ten minutes. Sure, that doesn't seem long, but that was an eternity to experience. Slowly they sawed away at my flesh and muscle. I could feel the disease and rot entering my body the instant the blade ripped flesh. I screamed and begged, but the only time the serrating teeth were removed was when they poured a thick red liquid into the open wound. But this was no release. When they brought that red vial over, I screamed until I lost my voice. Would they please just cut the fucking thing off? But nothing I did hasten the ritual. It wasn't until they long carved through my bone had I outwardly given up. No longer screaming or begging, just crying as the gods kept me awake. And it wasn't until they completely removed my hand that they released their grip on me and let me fade back into the darkness. When I next woke, I found myself in my own bed, perfectly fine. And quickly, as soon as I woke up, I felt my memory of it fading like some cruel dream. I tried sprawling notes on paper, but every time I tried thinking about it, I felt that night slipping away from me. But you... You just brought everything back, clear as day. But even now, everything from that night is fading. And, uh, and if you excuse me, I have a bit of people watching to go do. Well, that was disturbing, honestly. Sent tingly feels up my arm and... Oh, anyway, the boss wanted it as his Festival of Dead entry, and, despite the innocuous appearance of the Crawling Claw, Nico and company have taken many, many notes and studies and different tests on this one. We've tried shortening it up a bit, but here we go. Physiology. The Crawling Claw is the result of a necromantic spell being casted on a severed hand, typically one of a murderer, abuser, or cultist. The reason that's so is because of the harsh intentions that the body held before are used in the casting of this necromantic ritual. It becomes the very catalyst driving these tiny undead creatures to continue committing the acts of their former lives. But, because it's just a reanimated limb, it's not very formidable. They aren't very fast, so they can be easily outran. Their constitution is that of a normal hand, meaning a simple kitchen knife can usually take one out. 
I would like to apologize to the pixie when I said that it was the weakest monster I had come across because, well, this is just a hand. It has no eyes or brain or anything. It is either controlled by a necromancer or will just blindly continue doing what it did in its previous life. Weaknesses and Resistances This creature is not only an undead, but also a hand, so it can't be poisoned, charmed, and it does not require air, food, drink, or sleep. But other than that, they are quite literally a hand. I don't know why you would try any of these things, just stab it. Hell, even a well-intentioned whacked with your bare hands could probably kill one of these things. Attacks The Crawling Claw typically has one form of attack, unless it's being puppeteered by its necromancer, in which case their imagination is the limit. A lone Crawling Claw will strike either with its fingernails, trying to claw out your flesh, or simply try and punch you to death. And some of the more intuitive claws, they will also attempt to strangle their victims. Now, this part we put together out of the extra notes that were all left over, none of which seemed to actually outline the ritual used. Not that I would want to do anything, I just, so gods know. I was just curious. But it's no secret that this monster is created by some necromantic ritual that binds not the soul, but the will and hatred of a person to their severed hand. However, it does seem that the fresher the severed hand, the more successful the ritual, and that if the corpse has been long buried, no longer stained by its mortal sins, then the ritual will fail. This ritual will bind this now tiny undead creature to its creator's control. This allows the creator to telepathically control the severed hand and make it act or do anything a severed hand could do. If the creator isn't controlling, then it defaults to its most recent command, and if left alone too long, it will start committing the crimes of its former life. The commands have to be simple, because they are quite dumb. For example, you could never have a crawling claw go and track somebody and keep notes on them. It lacks awareness or intelligence to really do anything like that. They're better with simple and short time-framed commands. And, lastly, like Peter Ludwig experienced, if the crawling claw is taken from a living humanoid, after the ritual it will reattach itself to the wearer. The ritual also places a faint enchantment on the host so that they will forget the events that led to its now alien companion. The crawling claw will seem to operate like a normal hand, however, when its creator calls upon it, it will detach itself and cause the host to fall in an unwakeable coma. If the Crawling Claw is killed, its host will also die. However, if the host dies, the Crawling Claw will just stay... undead. Well, that's an end to this dumb and awful entry. Now that I know all of these encounters weren't pulled from Nico, I thought I'd ask who acquired this statement, because I thought that whoever it was might have some information on this Peter Ludwig. I asked the boss, and he did not take the statement, but rather a previous researcher, someone by the name of Bianca Golding. I tried to pry more information out of him, but getting any information out of Nico is like interrogating a wall. If he wishes to tell you something, he will. But like a lot of powerful wizards, I feel that he's unneededly secretive. He did inform me that if I would like to add who cast the spell and retrieve the story, I could. But he thought it a rather pointless and wasteful use of my time. I asked around trying to get more information on Bianca, but... The only person in the castle who seems to know her is Daisy, and Luna and Caitlin believe that she probably perished at the hands of one of these monsters. Luna laughed and said we might even find her statement among the piles here. Sadly, on my own time, Luna and I went to try and follow up with Peter, but upon further contact, his parents at the general store, Mr. and Mrs. Ludwig, reported Peter missing about five years ago. But I'm willing to bet part of him is still there. Thank you, as we almost wrap up the month of October, or the Festival of the Dead. 
If you enjoyed today's episode, please share it with your friends and family and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at MonstersOf underscore for all news and teasers for upcoming episodes. Today's story was taken from a one-shot I ran in which my players want to do more of an old-school investigation. So, I use this commonly underrated monster to help aid in the adventure and show that even the weakest of monsters can still be terrifying. Join me next week as we wrap up the iconic month of horror and take a trip to the southern country of Rakir with an episode about the mummy. Thank you for listening. Until next time.